it's Chris, the Supply Chain Doctor and host of Supply Chain is Boring. Over the years, I've interviewed some of the brightest minds and successful leaders in the world of supply chain management. In May 2020, I sat down with Ken Ackerman to learn more about him and collect a little supply chain management history. After our discussion, Ken told me about a similar interview he had with Dr. James Stock many years prior and the related work Dr. Stock was doing. In November 2020, I was able to catch up with Dr. James Stock to learn about his work. As an academic in the field of transportation, logistics, and now what we call supply chain management, Jim was well-connected to many of the original academic thought leaders in this space. Jim did interviews with many of these original thought leaders and shared them with me. The list includes Ken Ackerman, Don Bowersox, James Haskett, Bud Lalonde, John Langley Jr., Tom Menser, Tom Spee, and Daniel Wren. To carry on the great work started by Dr. Jim Stock, I'm dusting off these interviews and bringing them to you on Supply Chain is Boring. I said, well, if I ever have a child who wants to be in business, I'm going to hope I'm in a position to be his or her banker. Buy them a company, help them buy a company, but not the same company I'm in because I don't want to do what my dad did. I don't have the kind of personality where that'll work. He did, and I don't. Okay. Now let's go back to um, your your spouse, your wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that whirlwind romance. Mm-hmm. Um, so your first date was a dinner with her. Yes, at her brother's house. Yes. And you got approval at that, apparently. Yeah, but that. But the funny part is that one didn't take. Uh, then I didn't see her for a while, and then I met her again at a party uh, sometime later and remembered meeting her before and got to talking with her and decided this is somebody I really like spend more time with. So uh, uh, the first meeting didn't get the result that her brother intended, but the second one did. Now, do you think back 53 years yeah. uh, of marriage, did she... Um, let you pursue her and she slowed down so you could catch her type of thing? Or uh, did you have to convince her that you were the right person? I'm really not sure about that. I I think you'd have to ask her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, whatever. It's been uh, excellent 53 years. Let's shift gears for a moment in terms of uh, general questions that probably you're never asked and haven't thought about. First one being... If you could uh, live in any historical period, you mentioned an interest in uh, literature and history and other things, what historical period of time would you like to have lived in and why? Well, I think that probably the uh, Civil War period in America had to be among the most turbulent and interesting times uh, it was a time when businesses grew like crazy. Those that you know were, were positioned could grow, particularly in the post-Civil War period. It was a time when the country was going through great agony, uh, and when the co- country had its probably its best leadership. In uh, having been born on the 12th of February, I've had an enormous interest in Lincoln. I've done a lot of writing, reading about Lincoln trying to understand the talents the man had, I, I would have enjoyed being alive when he was and, and 
and having the chance to observe how he operated. So I think that's probably the time in that, that is of greatest interest, and that's only 150 years ago. I haven't thought much about whether I would like to have been a Roman or a Greek or one of those people. That's so far away that it's hard to identify. And back in Lincoln's day, you actually could have met him. It was much easier to meet. You uh, probably could have. Then. Sure, of course it was. Yes. Now, if you could meet any historical icon, you mentioned uh, Lincoln, yeah. uh, the past or present. Who would that be? Well, that's uh, I've answered it really. It Anyone would... else? Oh gosh. Could be present day or anything from the past. Uh, my commander in chief when I was in the army was Eisenhower, and I saw Eisenhower numerous times. I wish I could have met him and talked with him. Uh, I, I think he was an amazing man, and uh, I would have loved to have learned from him because I think uh, he. I don't think he's fully appreciated today. I think he will be with a little more distance. So I guess uh, those two are, are people that I, I wish I could have met and talked with. I've got to think a little bit. Uh, Sherman has always interested me. He was born 30 miles from here. I've read a lot about him. Uh, he was considered by some to be clinically insane. Uh, he was also considered to be brilliant. Uh, Lincoln was among those who thought he was brilliant. Uh, and from everything I've read about him, I wish I could have met him, because he was he was very unconventional military man. Uh, he uh, and, and the ironic thing is that he had great love for the South. He lived in Louisiana when the war started, and and he loved the South. He was furious about those people in the South who had taken it out of the Union, but he didn't hate the South in general. He really loved it. So he was a complex human being. Yeah, sounds like he was. Now, if you could be anyone in history, who would you be? Oh, I suppose Lincoln. I'm getting repetitive, but still... Uh, Lincoln's style of leadership was unique in the last wonderful book uh, written by Doris Kearns Goodwin about, is it called The Band of Rivals or Team of Rivals, whatever it is. Uh, his ability to take all the people who he knew was oppo were opposed to him and say, I want you on my team, uh, was, was absolutely incredible. And, and most of those people arrived there either hating him or, or something close, certainly not liking him, and came away with the opposite because uh, he just absolutely turned them around. And that's a rare talent. Sounds like something we could use today. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, some general information about you, Ken, um, that perhaps we've not touched on. Is there any little-known fact or intriguing event that other people probably would not know about you? As an illustration, when I interviewed Don Bowersox, he indicated he almost became a pharmacist. Oh, really? And uh, Tom Menser indicated that he was almost put in jail 
by the, uh, the federal agents for uh, something that they thought he had done. Gee. Well, you know, I, I, it's terrible that I can't kind of think of an answer to that. But uh, uh, well, people outside of this town don't know that I am a founder of an independent school, which I am, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, what was the motivation behind that? Rage, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolute disgust at this, with the status quo. Uh, there were at that time two independent schools in Columbus, both single sex, uh, and the girls' school particularly was very badly managed at that time. <clears throat> they finally uh, fired the guy that uh, was wrecking the school. They finally caught up with him. <clears throat> we opened a school on the other side of town, and it was opened as a co-ed school. It was the first co-ed independent school in Columbus, and. It has had a fantastic growth. It's gone, I think, beyond our wildest dreams. And and I think if there's any single community thing that I'm proud of, it is to have been a founder of the Wellington School. But people outside of Columbus don't know about that unless they read all the fine print in my bio. Mm -hmm. And so it's a profit center, sounds like. Well, I wouldn't say it's profitable, but it's... <laughs> No, it's it's you know it's a 501c3 of course, uh, and and we depend upon uh, the generosity of parents and grandparents and and now alumni. We've been in business long enough now to have alumni able to give money. Okay. But uh, fundraising for schools is a tricky thing. We're still working at that. And I would add that I have nothing at all to do with that school today. I don't believe in staying on boards. I was on that board a long time and was glad to leave somebody else's turn. Okay. <clears throat> now, is there any part of what you have done in your life that you would, as you think about uh, that 50-plus years, that you would do differently? If I could do it over again, what would I do differently? Not really a lot. Uh... I wish I had gotten into this counseling business with Vistage earlier than I did because I've had a lot of fun with it. And uh, I, I would have been glad to do it earlier. Its great virtue is there's no travel. All of my group members live in Columbus, so I'm not on airplanes. And, and my motivation for doing this is to reduce the amount of travel, which, as you know, is not as much fun as it used to be. If it ever was fun, it certainly isn't today. So uh, I, I wish I had uh, started that maybe 10 years earlier than I did. Now, did that group exist 10 years before? Uh, it, was, it used to be called Tech, and many people know it by its old name. It was the Executive Committee, and Tech entered... It started in Wisconsin 52 years ago. It entered Columbus in the early 90s. So I could have been doing it uh, 10, 15 years earlier than I did. I've been at it for three years, but I could have been at it a lot earlier. And How did you become aware of that group? Well, the guy, the first tech chair in Columbus was a friend. I knew him when he started. Uh, I 
even gave him some tips on recruiting, building a group of people that might be interested. So I was trying to help him because I liked him, and I thought that the business model was different from YPO, but very valid. And, and I liked the differences, and I thought it, that, that YPO needed competition. Everybody needs competition, and that this was a good option to those who might like the idea but didn't want to go to YPO or didn't get didn't couldn't or something like that. Uh, unlike YPO, Tech ha and Vistage have no age restrictions, so I have this group with a 30-year spread from oldest to youngest. You don't get that with a group that kicks everybody out at age 50. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting business model, and uh, in many ways a superior one, which I wish I had started earlier. Okay. Now... Ken, being in the, um, we don't want to say twilight of your career, but you're certainly <laughs> older than when you began 50-some years That's ago. That's fair, yeah. I haven't gotten younger. <laughs> how do you hope to be remembered? You know, what, how do you think people will remember you? Well, I think about uh, Jefferson, another person. That, you know, we talked about people you'd like to meet. I should have mentioned him. I really would have loved to meet him. Cause, uh, and I would have loved to have met Teddy Roosevelt. I don't know. I didn't. I'm answering these out of order, but that's quite all right. Uh, Jefferson being Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson and Teddy Roosevelt, I think, were two of the greatest intellects that ever sat in the White House, and uh, in strong personalities, uh, and uh, Roosevelt must have been a speed reader and a fantastic linguist. He read most stuff. Most French stuff he read in French, and and read at huge speeds, and was a brilliant horseman. I like horses. I would have liked to have met Teddy, and I would like to have met Jefferson. But I think uh, Jefferson at Monticello, if you go to uh, his beautiful home in Virginia, and visit the gravesite, he designed his own tombstone and. He even did a sketch of it and said what they could write and said, write this and nothing more. And what it says is that he was the author of the Virginia Bill of Religious Freedom, something like that. That's what it was about anyway. Uh, author of the Declaration of Independence and founder of the University of Virginia. That's all it said. It doesn't say that he was president. And that was very deliberate. He felt that doing those three things was more important than being president. So uh, I guess I don't think it was terribly important to have been president of a corporation. Uh, I do think it was important to have been a founder of a school. So, you know, I am not designing my tombstone but and, and don't even care if there is one, but uh, I guess I'd like to be remembered as a founder of a school. Okay. Now, what do you do in your spare time? I don't have much. I understand. I understand. But you try I, to have some spare yeah. time. No, I, I do a lot of reading. Uh, fiction, nonfiction? Nonfiction and in periodicals. Uh, my favorite is The Economist. I spend a lot of time reading that magazine, which has a huge amount of material in it. And... Uh, I go through the New York Times on the web and uh, scan parts of the Wall Street Journal. I do read some fiction. I'm reading uh, 
Vargas Llosa, who's the Peruvian who won the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature, when I read about him, I said I want to read a little of his stuff because I like Peru and I wanted to see what he was writing about, and, and that's fun. Now, are you reading it in English or Spanish? No, I'm reading it in English. Oh. <laughs> I thought about trying to read it in Spanish and said it's too hard. It won't read it as fast. I could probably could do it, but it's just easier. And I pace walk, uh, usually two miles a day, sometimes three. Uh, I do ski about once a year. Uh, I go to the opera. Now that the Metropolitan Opera is in your local movie theater, I go to the opera a lot, but mm -hmm. just for 20 bucks to the movie theater, and it's better than being in Lincoln Center. So I do that. Uh, and... Uh, I watch very little television, almost never go to the movies. So that's, and I don't have a whole lot of spare time. Well, one of the things about writing, which I still producing a newsletter, you can't write unless you're reading because you run out of things to write about. And if you keep writing about the same old stuff, nobody will read it. I always find it interesting on your newsletter, you always have on the back page a summary of articles. That's right. I have to read those. <laughs> so, so as you well know, seeing my newsletter, there are about uh, six or eight trade magazines that I have to thumb through every month to find stuff. And that's, you know, and I've, I've with experience, learned how to get through those pretty quickly and find what's worth writing about. Now, Ken, one of the things I find interesting with all the activities and things uh, and knowing a number of people here in Columbus, Ohio State especially, that you were never a golfer. No, I think it's a terrible waste of time. Uh, I, I, I have no regard for that activity whatsoever. And, of course, it's a ball game. I told you, I can't play ball games, even croquet. No hand-to-eye coordination. Okay. I, my father wanted me, was very anxious to have me be a polo player. Being at a school full of horses at Culver, I couldn't hit the ball. Great disappointment to me and more to my father. He thought that was a thing to do, to play polo. And it is a wonderful game, but you must have hand-to-eye coordination. Yeah. Long stick, ball, yeah, you're yeah. up several feet from the ball. That's right. Very difficult. Now, Ken, does religion have any role as you were growing up, or presently? Uh, not presently. Uh, I joke that I'm sort of a born-again pagan. and uh, My wife had, uh, is a card-carrying member of the Unitarian Church here, and she goes, and I let her go. And uh, I like to spend my... Uh, I didn't mention this. We have a cabin in the hills in Hocking County, southeastern Ohio. So Sunday for me is Hocking County. That's where I like to be, and uh, I get inspired by the trees. Yeah, the Hocking Hills are very pretty, as I remember when I was here. Yeah, they still are very pretty. Now, in terms of uh, your life, both before warehousing and distribution, um, what, were, what do you think the main lessons you've learned in life have been? Leadership is important. Leadership can be taught. Uh, helping people be good leaders is worth doing. 
uh, developing the next generation of leadership is valuable in every organization and passing on leadership responsibilities to other people is not easy but very necessary. Good. And you think in terms of what you're doing now, um, in terms of counseling and so forth, mm -hmm. developing leaders, um, you could not have done earlier in your career then? Oh, I probably would have tried. I don't know. I think that uh, maturity has probably made me better at it. I don't think I'd have been very good at it uh, in my 20s. I think that uh, as you go through life, you're in a a constant uh, tussle with leadership issues. One of my greatest frustrations in leadership was a very turbulent year as president of our local opera company. And I came away from that hating almost everybody involved in it, and it was mutual. <laughs> and, and I simply couldn't identify with those people. Uh, we didn't think the same way. And, and it was my view that you ought to at least, if you don't make money, at least spend it responsibly and come close to breaking even. And I was with a bunch of people who were the last of the big-time spenders, and they drove me crazy. Mm -hmm. So that was a leadership job that was a failure on my part. I, I could not adapt to the culture, or nor could I change it came away just very frustrated. So proof of the fact that you don't win them all. Now given your educational background, your work experience, your marriage, were there things that you would call turning points in your life which caused significant shifts in direction or expanded horizons, those kinds of things? One turning point was what I consider to be perhaps the best single piece of advice that I can remember receiving, and it came from my wife's guardian. It wasn't her father. She lost her parents in childhood. Both died young of disease in childhood, in her childhood. But she was raised by two cousins, and the man was a tax lawyer in Washington, and I think shortly after I was married, and he was talking to me about the business I was going into, and he gave me a wonderful piece of advice. He said, if you start writing about the business you are in and how it's done, he said, you'll be positioned as an expert. He said, even if you aren't, because nobody else writes. He said, so few people in business write anything mm -hmm. down. So he said, start writing. And I followed that advice, followed it pretty early and discovered fairly early that there were trade magazines that would print almost anything <laughs> if it was legible because they were looking for material. So I, I realized that the best way to be recognized as a supposed expert was to write about what you were doing, even the most mundane things that nobody else wrote down. Okay. So that was a turning point. Uh, the idea of getting out of business before age 50 was clearly a turning point. And then the idea that was brought to me by one of my board members that, it, that the company would bring more gain by liquidating rather than selling 
was a major turning point, and we executed, and we, we did it. So uh, I felt it was the, the luckiest thing that ever happened to me, aside, of course, from being married, was to get out of business while I was still fairly young. Good. Now, given all that experience that you've had, you know, here we are at Ohio State University. They have a logistics and supply chain program. Mm -hmm. um, if you were counseling them, what would you tell them in terms of uh, what they should expect, what they should look for, what they should be doing as recent graduates? Well, I think I would tell them that they need to constantly polish their communication skills that a supply chain manager is a bridge builder between other disciplines. And particularly in this era of email, uh, you don't get it all done talking. you got to get a lot of it done writing. And uh, so you'd better be able to write well. You'd better be able to communicate with other people. You'd better be able to see their point of view and build a bridge to them. Uh, you have to get along. And... Uh, recognize that you're in a bridge building occupation and if you don't like being a bridge builder better find something else to do so you would do I infer from that that uh, if students were pursuing careers in distribution supply chain management for example uh, they should concentrate on non supply chain non distribution types of courses that are more human relations uh, communications and so on Jim, I'm a great believer in versatility. I'm awfully glad that my undergrad degree was in modern languages and Latin American affairs and not in business. Uh, I, I think uh, that the, the best leaders are rounded people who have varied interests instead of being very narrow specialists that just know how to do one thing. So I would advise them, uh, don't just study don't just study supply chain. You know, go out and learn another language. Uh, if it's not too late to get that done, it's never really too late. Uh, go out and do other things and be a generalist because I think that uh, <clears throat> generalists are the ones that can move to the top who have multiple skills. And, of course, in our world economy today, uh, I have a granddaughter who's decided she's going to major in Japanese. That just fascinates me. I, I kind of wish I had done that. It's a tough language. <laughs> it is a very tough language mm -hmm. and a very different culture, but a very important one. Mm -hmm. And and that youngster will, if, if she gets good at it, uh, that alone will be something that will get her a good job somewhere. Now, when you think back, you, know, you started the profession in the 50s. Mm -hmm. We're familiar with it before that because your father being in yeah. the trucking and warehousing business. Uh, what are the most significant ways you think the marketplace has changed in that time? Well, there is far greater recognition today for the role of service providers. Incidentally, I reject the term 3PL, which I think is a poorly chosen phrase. I prefer to call them logistics service providers, which is the business I was in far greater acceptance 
of that willingness to outsource that function far greater than it was 20 years ago and infinitely greater than it was 30 years ago. <clears throat> it, uh, you know, there's far more outsourcing than insourcing, I think, today. And it started in Europe, but it, it's happened more here. The growth opportunities for logistics services overseas are enormous. Mm-hmm. Latin America has relatively little of it. Uh, not sure about the percentage in Asia, but as a world business, it has enormous growth opportunities because there is greater acceptance of the fact that you do the follow the Drucker idea of sell the mailroom, stick to your core competency, and don't mess around with things that you don't know how to do well. Now, you mentioned core competency. Should a firm ever outsource a core competency to a service provider? Well, not if it's really the core competency. I don't think they should, no. Uh, unless there are certain conditions where it makes sense. Uh, a turbulent labor market, uh, a overseas different culture. Uh, you may be very good at running warehouses in the United States, but should you try to run them in China, if you have to be in China? Or would you be better off to let a Chinese firm or an American firm with extensive Chinese experience do it for you? Uh, Or not necessarily American, but a firm with substantial on-the-ground experience. And the hypothetical is, supposing I got to open a distribution center in China and have it open within the next six months. I think you'd be insane to try to do it yourself. The, the cultural gaps, the linguistic gaps, the, the everything about it is so different. Plus the relationship building that takes years yes. in those things. Yes. Now these changes that have taken place, are there any that you perceive as being not good changes? Oh boy, in this election season I almost hate to answer <laughs> that question. Uh I think one of the healthiest things that's happened in America in the last 30 years has been the relative shrinking of labor unions in the private sector because I think they've been very destructive. There was a time in the 19th century and early 20th when they did good work. But more recently, they've been very destructive. And I'm very concerned about the pro-union bias of the federal government today which I hope and believe will have to change. Uh, I am, like many, very concerned about what I see as an anti-business bias in Washington, which I think will change. And I am concerned about the growth of the public sector and the fact that public sector workers today apparently make more money than people in private industry. So pretty soon uh, we lost a wonderful politician in the state by the name of Bill Saxby who said, in England everybody is taking in everybody else's wash and that's where we could end up. If nobody's making anything in America anymore, we're just taking in each other's wash. Supply Chain is Boring as part of the Supply Chain Now Network, the voice of supply chain. 
Interested in sponsoring this show or others to help you get your message out? Send a note to chris at supplychainnow.com. We can also help with world-class supply chain education and certification workshops for you or your team. Thanks for listening. And remember, supply chain is boring.